Well, good morning. No pressure with this question, but how'd you sleep? Yeah, I don't believe you. Um, I slept horribly. That's not true, actually. Though Joe did get up before me. This is what happened to me this morning. Joe got up extra early. I got up fairly early, and I, I walk out of my bedroom. I'm half asleep, and your minister, he's a, apparently an extremely holy man. He was sitting by the fireplace with his Bible open, a commentary open, sort of deep in thought. She said, and I thought, well, my goodness, you know, that, that may actually be a Christian man. I'm not sure I've ever seen one. And I walked out, and I mean, I'm sort of stumbling. I'm not at all awake yet. And he says, let me ask you a question about this Greek verse. Um, the commentary says, what do you think? And I'm like, uh, <laughs> Joe, I'm, I'm not sure I'm prepared to answer that question. But we had a, a good little talk. I've got to say, though, I mean, I'm having a good time. I thought we had a good time last night. But I'm afraid that the women's retreat, which is taking place, I think they might be having more fun than us. I was just invited in to dance to girls just want to have fun. And um, I, I didn't go. I didn't go. I was, it was hard not to. Um, and I just think we need to think about that. So we're getting a little break time uh, after this. We should think about how we spend it because, uh, you know, guys can have fun too. And so let's think about that. But here's, here's sort of how I'm hoping... Uh, some of our time today will go. I'm going to say just a couple things that kind of put back out there what I said last night, just so we sort of remember where we were, um, mostly for me. I'm sure you remember just fine, but I'll just take a minute or two. But then I want to ask a couple questions on the basis of it and think about sort of the disconnect between what we're saying is true, but the experience we have of life. So if last night was really a chance to sort of just put some stuff out there that we confess to be true on the basis of Jesus Christ, Today's hopefully going to be a chance to talk together about why it doesn't always feel like it and a chance to sort of hopefully get some intersection between the lives we're actually living and what we confessed to be true last night on the basis of what God has done in Jesus. I've learned on these retreats that you should never try to go there on the first night. It's just not, it's not quite ready yet. I wasn't quite ready for you to tell me your real stories, but if you want to today, it's okay because I'll be gone very soon um, and I promise to forget. But that's what we'll do, and then we'll have a chance to sort of talk in small groups. I think, Joe, what's the idea? We'll maybe break up into about five groups or so, something like that. Um, and then we'll come back and have a chance to kind of debrief that and close with a little reflection. So There's going to be a little less talk from me today, but I'll sort of get us started, hopefully get us having some conversation, be here as we debrief it, and then end with a concluding reflection. But hopefully this will be a chance to do a lot of this together today and sort of think through these things. So that's the goal anyway. Before I jump in, let me just say a prayer, and then we will, we will get started for today. So please pray with me. Father in heaven, we need your mercies today. And we thank you for your promise that your mercies are new every morning. And so as we gather, we ask two things. One, that you would show us afresh that we need Jesus. And two, that you would give us Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. All right. So just to remind you, not that you need it, but just because it's helpful for me to hear again of what I was trying to say last night. You'll remember that I said a lot of words just so that I could quote Bob Dylan. That's what really happened. And um, where I was trying to get was to say that because of what God has done in Jesus, we can say what Bob Dylan said, which is, thank God I'm not me. That there's been 
a unchaining or an untying of ourselves from ourselves. And we don't have to think of ourselves as the deep and final answer to the question, who am I? The deep and final answer to the question, who am I, is not what we do or don't do, but what God has done, is doing, and will do for us in Jesus Christ. In Christ's death, we have died, we've been freed from ourselves, and we've been given a new life that Jesus calls a life of rest and a life of love. That's what I was hoping to say last night. Maybe you heard me say something like that and some other things as well. I also talked a little bit about sleep because that's what I was thinking about. And I do think it's a really interesting symptom or illustration of the way we co-opt the things that seem to render us inactive, the things that seem to exclude us, and we kind of bring them in to our productivity. One of the things I didn't tell you last night, which I think is particularly interesting, and I thought about it as I woke up this morning, some of you will know, some of you may have, I haven't looked intentionally, but a very hot selling item right now is the Nike Fitbit. Do you know this? You wear it. It tells you all kinds of useful things. Um, how many steps you've taken, how many calories you've burned, all kinds of things. And that's fine. Um, I have no problem. As some people have pointed out, we live in an era where we get lots and lots of data. We've got lots of information about ourselves. And that in and of itself can be a very good thing, a very useful thing that could be helpful. It's also a thing that can be co-opted by human beings to do things. The main thing I see happening with all this new data we have about ourselves, all these charts we have about ourselves, is that it gives us the opportunity both to measure ourselves and to compare ourselves with others. Those seem to be the two main things we're doing with all this data. But whatever you do with that, one of the one of my favorite features of the Nike Fitbit, which I woke up this morning wishing I could use, just so I didn't get out of bed with too high of a self-esteem, is you can program it to give you a sleep score. So you go to bed and you're asleep, but don't worry, you're still being monitored. And you can wake up and before you even get out of bed, you can look and say, I got a 25. That's pretty good. I have no idea if that's good or not. But um, you can sort of have a, a judgment rendered on the productivity of your sleep the night before, before you even start the day, right? So that's why I brought some of this stuff in. I just think it's one way that captures, maybe not quite as well, but maybe it's our modern version of the Nicodemus thing, right? You must be born again. Well, I don't really want to do that, but I think I'll give it a shot. I'll call my mother, right? This is kind of the, this is what we do with things. But what I want to think about today is I want to think about the gap or the disconnect between what I actually believe to be true, the stuff I said last night, you're not you. Your fundamental identity, what God sees and says when he looks at you, is rooted and anchored in Jesus Christ, not your own pedigree, performance, or resume. Right? I want to think about the disconnect between that truth and actually the experience of life, what life actually feels like to live Hearing Jesus say, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And ask, well, why then is life, the Christian life, still often characterized by weariness and exhaustion and heavy burdens and the sense and the anxiety that I'm still the one who defines who I am? I want to think about that gap tonight. And there's sort of various ways where it's been exposed in my own life. One time, I remember I was preaching on 1 John chapter 4. If you don't remember, 1 John chapter 4 has that beautiful line, God is love. Right? And then says, not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his own son for us. This beautiful passage. And 
my wife, um, sort of thoughtful and sincere person that she is, she said to me the morning I was going to preach, well, what are you preaching on this morning? And I said, well, I'm going to be talking about how God is love. And we had had a, I was going to say it was a particularly bad night, but it was just a normal night with our children. Our children are not what you would call good sleepers. And my wife looked at me and says, hmm, God is love. And she rolled her eyes and said, didn't feel like it last night. And I thought, well, you know, that's a fair thing to say. God is love, or I will give you rest. These are not actually descriptions of the way life feels. They're things we confess to be true on the basis of what God says, but they're not often descriptions of what life feels like when you're living it. And that's the disconnect I want to explore today. And the way it has come home to me most powerfully, well, there's two things. I'm going to go sort of 19th century novel, and I'm going to go 20th century pop song. So this is where it's come home to me. So hopefully wherever you live, right, you'll get one. But this is um, a book called The Revolution in Tanner's Lane. If you're a human being, I highly recommend it, um, if you can read. It's very difficult if you can. It's by Mark Rutherford. That's right. His real name was William Hale White. And he's an interesting uh, guy in a number of ways. I won't tell you his whole story. You can read his whole story in the autobiography of Mark Rutherford, which is his first novel, which is largely autobiographical. But the most important thing about William Hale White, who wrote under the name Mark Rutherford, is that his life, like his fiction, is the life of someone who could never quite hold on to and never quite fully let go of the hope of God's love for sinners. He could never quite believe it when it mattered, but he could also never quite let it go. And it is just all over his writing. And he wrote in the 19th century, he was friends with people like George Eliot, if that name means anything to you. So that's sort of the era he's writing in. And he wrote these stories of people who were trying to hold on to their religious faith in the face of questions, trials, conflicts, whatever. And this particular book, um, there's sort of two books in this book. But the second half is just this one village, uh, probably about an hour outside of London. And it follows this group of people who are members of the dissenting church. They don't go to the Church of England. They go to the much more serious church, you know, where they actually preach the gospel. Uh, it's in the tradition of John Bunyan, if these names mean anything to you. None of this is necessary to understand the story. But this is the sort of group of people, really sincere, earnest, kind of evangelical British people in the 19th century. And the guy we're going to look at is a guy named George. And George's dad had been a minister. He had grown up in the church his whole life. In a few chapters before this, we're told that George had never had a religious doubt in his life. He had never had a religious doubt. It didn't necessarily mean, as we'll see, that he had a sincere religious faith. He just never had to think about it. This was just something he could take for granted. He grew up with it. His dad preached it, he went to church, the woman he married went to church, and this is what he lived with. But what happens in this story is that this kid, really, he's 20, 21 years old, who's never had a religious doubt for the first time in his life, starts to have sort of some real crises. It starts when he gets married. Maybe that's a familiar story. He marries a woman who he's sort of admired from afar. And finally, they come together, because you can only really admire women from afar. In 19th century England, they live very close to each other, but you can't have much interaction. But they finally get married, and it's his dream come true. 
But of course, they didn't really know each other because there's no way to get to know someone in this context. And once they're now married, it's just a real marriage. It's neither better nor worse than what you would expect. But there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of moments of sort of real intimacy and romance. And there's moments of disconnect and confusion. And who the heck is this person that I'm married? And right as they're at sort of one of their low points, they've just had a child, and that's sort of put a lot of strain on their marriage. Again, something I understand a little bit about. And the wife has sort of directed her love primarily to the child and not to her husband. And so what he's done in response to her directing her love to the child is he's directed his time, at least. Not necessarily his love. He's actually bored with his work. But nevertheless, he's directing his time and his attention to his work. And so they're sort of farther apart than they've ever been, even though they're living their lives right next to each other. Right? So this is just the normal stuff that actually happens in the course of life. Two people who sincerely love each other, sort of standing back to back, living their lives next to each other, but not with each other. And as this is happening, and they're at, they're at one of these sort of disconnected moments, she gets really sick. Probably something like pneumonia or something like that, which has a real risk of death. And in her case, that's where it goes. Right? She reaches a point where she's certainly going to die. And he's in a complete panic. He's feeling all this guilt from having withdrawn from her. She's feeling all this guilt from having withdrawn from him. And right before she dies, they have a sort of very sort of uh, intense but heartfelt sort of moment where they say, I love you again. The scene goes like this, and this is setting up what I want to talk about. Right as she's about to die, she motions for everyone except for George to leave the room. And she turns to him and she says, George, my dear, she just breathed out. I'm a poor, silly girl, but I always loved you. And then Mark Rutherford says, he stopped her instantly with his kisses, but death had stopped her too. He recoiled for a moment and with a sudden scream, he yelled, oh, God, she's gone. That's where we are in the story. This has just happened. Okay. Life has already been hard for the first time. And he's had this disconnect from a woman he loves. And now she's died. And in the three months since she's died, he's experienced a massive disconnect from the God he thought who loved him. Right? And this is the passage I want to read you. It's just a couple of sentences, so not too much. But he's had this disconnect from the God he thought loved him. He had never had a religious doubt. But now for three months, he's hardly had any experience of faith. And he's finding no comfort in what's supposed to be the good and comfortable words of Jesus Christ. This is what Rutherford writes. He says, in those dark three months after her death, the gospel he had grown up with did nothing for him. And he was cast forth to wrestle with his sufferings alone. It is surely a terrible charge to bring against a religious system that in the conflict which has to be waged by every son of Adam with disease, misfortune, death, the believers in it are provided with neither armor nor weapons. Surely a real religion handed down from century to century ought to have accumulated of a store of comfortable truths which will be of some help in a time of need. If a religion can tell us nothing, 
if we cannot face a single disaster any the better for it, and if we never dream of turning to it when we are in distress, of what value is it? To me, that is a very helpful and necessary thing to hear. Here's a person who had heard, quote, the gospel their whole life, but when they actually needed help, they found no comfort in it. They didn't even think to turn to it. It wasn't the helpful place to go. And I want to think a little bit about why that may have been the case. Why it's so easy to know and, quote, believe and say things like God is love. I think I could probably give you all a pop theological exam right now that looked like this. One question, true or false, God is love. I suspect most of you would probably get the answer right. On the basis of 1 John 4, you'd probably write true. But if we ask the question a little more deeply, which would go something like this, what do you find yourself feeling or fearing or believing God thinks or feels about you when you fail? What do you find yourself fearing or feeling or believing God thinks about you when you get a phone call from someone you love who's just received a severe diagnosis? What do you find yourself fearing or believing or feeling God thinks and feels about you when your teenager calls and said, I've just been in a car accident? Or when your teenager goes off to college and doesn't call? right? Or when your sort of assets are slipping and you don't know how to stem the bleeding? Right? When real life is happening, do you find that where you're going and feeling and believing is a sentence like, God is love? Does that just feel true? Or does that seem to contradict your experience of these things? This disconnect is what I'm talking about. And if we don't sort of, if we're not honest, both that we experience this, and there's also a massive perception about what Christianity is, which is that it's not a place to go with your problems. It's not a place to go for help but it's a place to go when you have things sort of put together. And I'm just now being reminded, I don't know if you guys know the uh, American playwright named William Inge. William Inge was a very successful playwright in the 1950s and 60s. And he also wrote a movie called Splendor in the Grass in 1961, which he won uh, an Academy Award for, for the screenplay. And it was the debut of Warren Beatty. Aren't you excited that I'm telling you this? and one of the interesting things, this is all completely irrelevant, but um, don't worry, I'm excited about it. He wrote the screenplay and he said, I'll let you, I'll let Hollywood have the screenplay on the condition that I get to play the role of the Episcopal minister, which I think is fascinating, but that's just the kind of stuff I get excited about. Um, he does two things as the Episcopal minister. He preaches a sermon. It's not very good, but he preaches a sermon and he has a sort of pastoral one-on-one session for a woman who's kind of in despair. And that's the only role he plays in the movie. So Splendor in the Grass, I recommend it. It's also, uh, well, don't sort of, it's not fun, but it's very good. But he wrote a book in the 1970s called My Son is a Splendid Driver. And in My Son is a Splendid Driver, there's, it just follows this life of one family. And there's a woman who in the first half of the book has lost her favorite child. He died from a little infection, this kind of very routine thing that shouldn't have happened. It just seems unfair. 
and she suffered from this for about 15 years and never really gotten over it. It was clearly her favorite child. She feels guilt that she had a favorite child, but nevertheless, she had a favorite child, and she's lost him. And 15 years later, uh, another terrible thing happens to her. What happens to her 15 years later is her husband, who's really a good guy, it's Depression-era Kansas, and he's trying so hard to provide for his family. He's a traveling salesman. He's been doing it for about 25 years, spending every weekday going to you know, St. Louis, Kansas City, places like this, just traveling around. And for the first time in his 25 years, he does something really stupid. He has too much to drink at a bar, and he sleeps with a prostitute. Right? Not a good thing to do. It's completely out of character in the story, and it's not excused in any way, but it's just this thing that happened 25 years into doing this. He comes back home. Life is going on as normal until he transmits to his wife a sexually transmitted disease. Right? And this is kind of the situation. And she is so publicly embarrassed. She feels so much social shame, even though no one other than the town doctor even knows about it. But she's so afraid he's told other people that she won't leave her house. She's got a problem that's too big to leave her house. And the only thing she'll do is she'll sit on her front porch in the morning. Right? But once the neighbors start coming out, she goes back in. And she's sitting on her front porch with her son, the one who hasn't died, and she feels guilty that she doesn't love as much as the one who did, suffering with this social shame, this real problem. And she always knows when it's time to go back in because her neighbor across the street leaves the same time every day to go to Mass at the Catholic Church. And as she's getting up to go back inside, she says to her son as she watches her neighbor, I wish I had a God to pray to now. And then she says, and then he says, um, the son, mother had stopped going to church. And then she tells us why. She says, church is not a place you go with your troubles. Church is a place you go to when things are going well and you have a new hat to wear. And you can hear that and say, well, no, that's not right, right? But there's a really interesting comment from the author then. And the author tried to go to churches. And he found that he couldn't take his troubles there, William Inge. He found that you could only go there when things were going well. And in many ways, his experience of church as a place you couldn't take your troubles helps explain why two years after he wrote this book, he took his own life. Right? And this was his experience of church anyway. He says, he comments, there was some bitterness in what mother said, but there was also truth. Our minister would have been the last person in the world she could have told her troubles to. She would have embarrassed the man into silence. And then he said, I'm beginning to think that our whole religion is just one of refusing to deal with sin. That our whole morality is simply pretending it doesn't exist. This was a persons with troubles, a real crisis, their real felt perception of what Christianity was. A place to go when things were going well, not a place to go when you actually had a problem. This person in this book had grown up hearing the gospel their whole life, and yet when they had a problem for the first time, for three dark months, the gospel didn't seem to do anything. There was a massive disconnect between its problems, his problems, and the promises of God. And he didn't even think to turn to the God of Jesus Christ. This is the kind of disconnect 
I'm talking about here. But none of this is how it came home to me most profoundly. I'd like to tell you that it was by reading a sort of great American playwright and a 19th century author, but that's not actually how it came home to me. The truth is, it came home to me listening to Billy Joel. This is how it actually happened. I just have to be honest with you now. Came home listening to Billy Joel. And I'm not actually a great listener of Billy Joel. I actually respect him very much. I think he's quite impressive. But um, my mother-in-law happens to be a devotee of Billy Joel. And I was driving in my mother-in-law's car. I'm not going to explain the circumstances of this. But nevertheless, I was driving alone in my mother-in-law's car. I was driving from Fort Lauderdale to Orlando. You don't have to know much about this drive. It's probably the most boring drive in the world, actually. Um, the state of Florida is built for boring drives. But nevertheless, I think, I don't know this, but I think probably Disney has put some sort of magnet or something at the top of Cinderella's castle or something, which forces your car to drive faster than it should on the Florida's turnpike. Only when you're heading toward Orlando. I can drive roughly the speed limit driving south, but when I'm driving toward Orlando, I'm always driving a shocking amount of mile an hours over the speed limit. And as I'm doing this, I'm driving much too fast on the Florida's Turnpike, and a song from Billy Joel is on it. I'm not really paying attention to it. It's a song, I think, called Vienna. Maybe some of you will know this song. And as I'm driving too fast, I hear this line. Slow down, you crazy child. You're too rambunctious for a juvenile. And I thought, well, that's actually good advice. I'll hit the brakes. Right? But that sort of caught my attention. So now I'm listening for the next line. Just what might it say? So I'm sort of slowing the car down from about 150 to 130, sort of slowing down. And the next line was this. And this is the one that um, has stuck with me ever since. He said, if you're so smart, tell me why are you still so afraid? If you're so smart, well, tell me why are you still so afraid. If you know that God is love, then why are you still so afraid? If you know that Jesus came and promised rest, then why can you still not sleep? If you know that who you are is not defined and determined by what you do, but by what God has done for you in Jesus, then why are you still so afraid? Why, when you have to give a talk or write a paper or speak to these people or do something, do you have all the stress and anxiety about it? Why is there such a massive gap between your experience of life and what you confess to be true? If you're so smart, why are you still so afraid? And I started thinking about some of the things that 1 John chapter 4 says. Right, 1 John chapter 4 says what I told my wife I was going to preach on um, some time ago, God is love. It makes it very clear what that means. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a sacrifice for our sins. And then it goes on to say, perfect love cast out fear. Perfect love cast out fear. And I hear that, and then I've got Billy Joel singing in my ears this refrain, if you're so smart... If you know that God is love, and if perfect love casts out fear, then tell me, why are you still so afraid? How do you make sense of that? God loves you with a perfect love named Jesus Christ. Perfect love casts out fear. Then tell me, why are you still so afraid? And this is what I've been 
thinking about and wrestling with for a long time. This gap between our confession and our experience of living with and under those promises, but also with ourselves and all our fears, all our questions, all our successes, all our failures, etc. This gap between who we are in Christ and how we experience life in ourselves and in the flesh. And as I was doing that, I was struck by the second half of that verse from 1 John 4. So it says, perfect love casts out fear. But it also says this, the one who is not perfected in love is afraid. I never noticed that before. I'm supposed to notice things like that? I'm I'm a New Testament scholar? I mean, what does that mean? But... That just means I read the New Testament sometimes. Um, And when you wake up early in the morning, someone asks you questions about it, Joe. Um, But nevertheless, I never noticed it because clearly you're supposed to notice the half verse before it. Perfect love cast out fear. Right? That's the bit you're supposed to notice. But I needed Billy Joel to get me to notice the other half. If you're not perfected in love, you're afraid. And I don't know about you, but for me... The one who is not perfected in love is afraid sounds much more like a description of life as I experience it than perfect love cast out fear. I've got all sorts of fears that don't make sense in light of what I confess to be true, but nevertheless are there. How are my kids going to turn out? What's happening to them right now with their grandparents? Right? When my wife says... She loves me each night before we go to bed. Does she mean it? I mean, does she really mean it? You know, what is she really thinking about how I acted today? And I just sent that thing off to a publisher. What in the world are they going to say in response? And I have to wake up tomorrow and teach this class. And what are the students going to think? Right. And these are just the sort of things that make up my life. Do you know that I, I still play? lacrosse and I'm not particularly good anymore and thanks some of you for doing some internet exploration um, to confirm that at least my mother thought I was a good lacrosse player my mother was a prolific commenter under different names she thought I was very good at lacrosse Um, and I realized later like man somebody's living vicariously through me right now and there's a lot of pressure but let's not open up that uh, can of worms right just right now Um, but I still play lacrosse And I play in a situation where it should not matter. It's a competitive league with a lot of professional players and sort of old college players playing together. But it should not matter how I do. But the very last game we played, I missed a shot that could have won the game. We wound up winning in overtime, but I missed a shot at the end of regulation that I feel that I should have made. I was driving home, and I thought to myself, you know, it's so nice to not have to care so much anymore. There was a time, I thought, where that would have really haunted me. And I would have been so upset, I probably would have, like, broken a water bottle or something like that. Um, And I thought, man, it's so nice. I'm older now. I'm more mature. Jesus loves me. And so I don't have to worry about these things. And I'm laying in bed that same night. And I cannot fall asleep just thinking to myself, I cannot believe I missed that shot. That's so embarrassing. What are my teammates? They must be thinking, what are we letting this clown do? on the field if he's going to miss that shot. And I mean, I'm telling you, for hours, I laid there and thought about this stuff. It does not matter. And how does that exist in a world in which I say, 
I'm not me. Not I, but Christ. Right? What do we do with this disconnect? That's really what I'm talking about here. Right? Martin Luther, who it's hard for me to give a talk without at least mentioning the great reformer one time, he understood this profoundly. This is actually why Luther's my favorite theologian, not just because he was good at theology, but he understood real life and the intersection between them. And what he said is that it, it's so easy at the level of words that even the stupidest people can do this. Right? This is how Luther liked to talk. Right? He's like writing an academic treatise, and he's like, this is so easy that even the morons can understand what I'm about to say. Right? And they sort of say four words that you can't say in public. And, but it, you can say them in German. I've tried to figure that out. If, am I allowed in a seminary classroom to curse in German? I'm not sure. I haven't asked the administration yet. Um, but nevertheless, so he'd say, there's nothing easier at the level of words that even the stupidest people don't understand it. To just say, God relates to me not on the basis of me, but on the basis of Jesus. That's an easy thing to say, right? Even stupid people, right? I always tell my students there are no stupid questions, but there are stupid people. And your questions may reflect whether, what you are. Um, so... Luther said, this is very easy to say. God relates to me on the basis of Jesus, not on the basis of me. But he said, when it comes to experience, that thing which is easy to say is the hardest thing to believe, especially when you fail. In a moment of failure, the hardest thing in the world to believe is that God doesn't relate to you on the basis of your failure. And I think, as we started to explore last night, it's equally hard when you succeed to not be tempted to believe, hey, maybe God relates to me on the basis of this success. So it's easy to say. But what I'm trying to think with you about now is this gap between what we're saying is true, what we're confessing is true. And I really believe it to be true. I stand by what I said last night and actually wish that could have been the whole retreat. Guys, I have great news. You are not you. You are what God has done for you. Sweet dreams. Right? That's what I want the retreat to be. And I sort of stand by that. So when you go home, that's, that's what I said. You're not you. You are Jesus Christ. Sweet dreams. That was the, that was the message. But Billy Joel just wouldn't let me stop there. Right? And I hate him for it. I absolutely hate him for it. But he was right. I'm still afraid. And perfect love cast out fear, I say. But if I'm not honest that I'm still afraid, then what we'll do is we'll take that sweet promise, perfect love cast out fear, and we'll turn it into kind of a cruel demand that will sound something like this. You'll say to someone who's afraid, suck it up. Don't be such a coward. Don't you know that God loves you with the perfect love? Get over it. Right? And we'll turn it into this kind of thing. And we'll forget that truth. i got to go back to something more impressive than Billy Joel. Let's go back to Shakespeare. Shakespeare said in Hamlet, Conscience doth make cowards of us all. And we actually pay attention to what's going on inside. And what we know we've been, what we know we've done, what we know we've said, what we know we've felt, what we know we haven't done, as we just confessed this morning, it has a way of making cowards of us, of exposing the fact that we're still afraid that other people, that ourselves, and most especially God, will relate to us on the basis of me rather than on the basis of Jesus. And I just, what I want to do, we're going to break up into groups now, and and Joe, I'll I'll sort of leave it to you to sort of uh, 
say how we're going to do that, but we're going to break up into smaller groups, and we're going to basically talk about two things as a chance to explore this disconnect. The disconnect between God is love, which is what we say on the basis of Jesus, and I feel and fear so often that no one could love me. The disconnect between come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, and I just bought a coconut husk mattress, right? This kind of disconnect that we're talking about. And I just want you guys in your groups, and then when we come back together, we'll debrief to talk about two things, sort of two questions to explore, and hopefully these are easy enough to remember. The first question I want you guys to think about is just why does this disconnect exist? Why is there this gap between what God says and what we confess is true in Jesus and our experience of life? Why is it so easy to say God relates to me not on the basis of me but on the basis of Jesus, but so hard to feel and experience that that is true, both when you succeed and when you fail? So why is there this disconnect between Jesus' promise of rest and our life of weariness and exhaustion? So just try to think about, uh, you know, in any terms you want, sort of what in the Bible helps you think about that, what do you know theologically, but also just in your experience. What what gets in the way? What short-circuits the promise of God from touching your real life? So that's question number one. Why is there this disconnect? But question number two is where, when, how, in what way has that disconnect actually been bridged? What's a moment in which God's promise actually got to you? And you weren't able just to say God is love, but that was actually something you could confess from what you had just received, something you had felt where the promise of the gospel and God's offer of Jesus Christ to sinners actually felt like rest. It felt like help. It felt like comfort. Can you identify a moment, moments, sort of ways and places in which God actually got to you where you live with his love and comfort and rest? And as you do that, pay attention to sort of the conditions under which it happened. Right? Why, if it so often doesn't happen, did at this point God get through? Right? What did you hear? What was going on in your life? What made you sort of susceptible to being a receiver of that word of love and rest? This kind of thing. So two questions. Why the disconnect? And where, when, and how, if ever, right, has God actually gotten through to right where you're living, not just to your head, but to your actual life with his word of love and rest. So that's what I imagine us talking about in our groups. And as I understand it, Joe will, uh, you can help me out here. We'll, we'll break into groups. You can give us a sort of amount of time to do that. And then we'll go back to our rooms, get packed up and come back here and we'll kind of debrief that together. And there will be a concluding reflection. So I'll take some instructions from you now. Okay.